Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 13. Uh Uh-oh. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham, and this is the podcast to inform, debate, and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode number thirteen. You may infer I'm a little bit superstitious. So let's hope this is a good episode. I hope all the others have been. I'm really pleased with the way this is going. We're on to number 13. I hope you're enjoying it. I'm still enjoying making them. So uh, um, let's see how we go. What have I got to say to you this time? Well, I'm enjoying the summertime. It's been great so far here in the UK. Uh, We've had some lovely weather, uh, which is unusual um, for our summer. It's often wet and rainy. It hasn't been so, so far. We've just had the remnants of Hurricane Bertha pass over us, which was uh, a bit wet, but um, obviously nothing like a hurricane. Um, That was interesting yesterday. I'm off on another holiday, uh, come this coming Friday, going camping again, so I'm hoping the weather's going to be as good as my last one. I got a nice tan on the last one. Let's hope it's as good. If it's not, let's hope it stays dry, and I hope all your holidays are going well too. I'm sure a lot of you are jetting around Europe or around the world enjoying your summer holidays, so I hope they're going well for you too. Just to let you know, my latest newsletter has been released, so you can go there and subscribe. If you go to criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, there's links on there. I try and send out a newsletter every couple of weeks and my focus has moved slightly that I'm trying to let people know of any useful research that I've come across and providing links in the newsletter. So maybe that's something you could subscribe to as well which helps us keep in touch. On my website as a whole I am trying to work through some key research topics. I've covered a lot on fluids, some on ARDS for example and always welcome suggestions from any of you out there to uh, talk about any other particular pieces of research that you think might be key to the critical care environment or even even indeed the uh, emergency um, department environment. My job talking about emergency nursing, I'm looking forward to my change. For those of you who haven't listened to previous episodes of my podcast, all of which you can now find in iTunes and on my website criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk Um, I'm going to be moving at the end of September to the emergency department to become a practitioner there. Big change for me, looking forward to it, a little bit nervous, hoping um, I can uh, be as uh, impactful there as I am in the critical care department. We're having a bit of a lull in the critical care department itself here. We're having a bit of a summer break. It's only lasted a few days. It used to last a bit longer than that. We've actually got a few empty beds, which is very, very unusual. Normally we have one or two at most, but we've got a few more than that. So it's been a little bit more peaceful. We, we've earned the break. We've all worked ever so hard this year. 
and we've just had doctors changing over as well um, so some of the new doctors some of the real fresh ones out of university as well some of the foundation year one doctors um, I've tried to stop people being too negative about them they do need our support um, we often hear people referring to things like Black Wednesday and of course the media don't help with that they tend to feature that as well and these doctors need our support they're young they're fresh they're enthusiastic um, and with a bit of support I'm sure they'll all be absolutely brilliant as well so this episode this podcast episode is an interview with Dr Louise Rose she's a professor over in Canada in Toronto and she's going to talk to us about some of the uh, practices they have in their weaning unit over there so without further ado let's go to the interview hope you enjoy it and I'll speak to you again after <laughs> Yeah. Um, but you're uh, you're a New Zealander, is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, actually, I was born in Manchester, in the UK. But um, yeah, I carry a New Zealand passport. But I lived in Australia for um, seven years before I moved to Canada. Right. Okay. But you 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 grew up in Wellington. All right to believe that. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. Great. Um, okay. So the the reason I. The reason I wanted to chat to you is because I saw your very interesting article and I've been going through this afternoon as well um, about the psychological well-being uh, related quality of life and the memories of intensive care. And I think the first thing that struck me about that um, is how complicated the actual title sounds, let alone potentially how complicated the study must have been as a consequence of it. Can I just clarify first and foremost your role now, where you work and, and what you what you actually your daily job involves <laughs> yeah so my 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 i have many affiliations here in canada so my new role which i started about a month ago its official title is the td nursing professor of critical care research um it's on my email i can send you michael my thingies if it's easier and that's at um sunnybrook health sciences center which is one of the large um academic quaternary centres here in Toronto. It's a major trauma centre as well. It has five ICUs, so it's a big centre. Um, my my primary employer is actually the University of Toronto, so I'm an associate professor at the Lawrence S. Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing at U of T. And um, the position that I, that I hold that um, led to that piece of research is I'm also the research director for that's my puppy. Uh, the research <laughs> director for um, the provincial uh, weaning centre here in Ontario, based at Toronto East General Hospital. So um, we have a uh, it's, it's supposed to be eight beds, but it's actually six functional beds that accepts patients from ICUs around the the Greater Toronto area and the province of Ontario. Patients have been in ICUs for at least three weeks. Generally, they've been in ICUs for two to three months before we um, we get referrals. Um, and with a program, a 90-day program that focuses on um, progressive trach mask weaning trials, early mo well, it's not really early mobility, but it's mobility in in the weaning centre, um, focusing on communication, management of psychological issues sort of weaning from the ICU as well as weaning from the uh, from the ventilator because it's a, a centre that's actually based on a respiratory ward. Um, it's not within an ICU. Uh, patients are not monitored apart from saturation monitoring during their trach mask trials. Um, there's a, a 
uh, our nurses probably they manage either two vented patients or one vented patient and, and two patients out on the floor. So very different staffing ratios. Um, yeah. So I'm the research director for that centre. Okay. Um, so what's it, it, did your has your background led you that way towards um, this kind of weaning side of ITU rather than the acuter side of it? Uh, well, it, it sort of it sort of drifted that way really. So my PhD work um, was in uh, ventilation and weaning, um, but it was more in the ICU setting. So I did a number of studies for that PhD. I did a point prevalence survey of ventilation and weaning practices across Australia and New Zealand. And then that sort of stemmed from reading um, papers on, on, you know, ventilation practices, looking at different practices across different countries and sort of thinking that it didn't really fit with what I knew of as the Australian model. Um, so, so I did that, focusing on more acute weaning. I did a randomised controlled trial of the automated weaning system Smart Care. And also did um, some survey work and observational work looking at nurses' roles and responsibility for weaning with recognition that, you know, as in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, uh, we don't have respiratory therapists and ventilation and weaning tends to be more of a nursing role than it definitely here is in Canada where people, the nurses very much are, are sort of removed a little bit from the ventilator. Um, so that was my PhD work and then I came to Toronto, I was recruited um, by U of T and so the medical director of the weaning centre invited me to come out and talk to him because he could see a, a natural fit with somebody who's doing work in weaning and his weaning centre. So from that, from working in that centre and the research work that I've been doing in the past um, four years, I, my, my sort of look at weaning and, and ventilation as a whole has really expanded across the continuum. I do work, um, I have done work looking at ventilation in long-term uh, centres and, and quite a bit of work now looking at people living at home on ventilators. So really extending that continuum and having a, a good perspective because um, I also have an affiliation with uh, long uh, big long-term, the biggest in the country actually, long-term ventilation centre here in Toronto as well. So it's really given me quite a different perspective um, on the continuum of care and ICU survivorship um, that we really don't see um, as you're practising acute care in the ICU, right? Absolutely. And I think probably one of the most interesting things that um, uh, springs to mind straight away is that you are seeing a lot of the patients um, move towards an endpoint that potentially as an ITU nurse, we, we don't see so much. Um, so we do get these long term weaning patients with their long term issues and we're still approaching them from an ITU point of view. And what strikes me straight away is that you're not would you call yourself and you wouldn't probably even call yourself an ITU would you you're you're a weaning center and that's completely removed from an ITU exactly very much very much and you, you've really got it there it is it is as I said it's weaning from the ICU it's a totally different uh, totally different concept and um, you know one of the arguments is is that potentially getting the patients out of the ICU is the number one thing we actually do for them. It doesn't matter really what we're doing with their ventilation, it's getting them out of the ICU environment, which, you know, as we all know, is, is not particularly pleasant and can cause its own issues. Absolutely, which we can talk about in a moment. But what is, uh, 
do you have fairly strict criteria for the type of patient you take out of ITU or do you go and assess them first and then decide whether it's right for that patient as opposed to the patient next door that it perhaps wouldn't be right for? So we do have quite strict uh, criteria because obviously there's a safety aspect. So because of the, the decreased um, availability of staffing, both nurses and physicians, um, they, they have to be relatively stable. So we won't take patients who are still receiving vasopressors. Um, we don't also don't take patients that um, we would declare as unweanable. So there's a whole group of patients that we would say, so if it, say for example, the most, most common extreme would be an ALS patient. You know, ALS patients generally are not weanable. Um, and so we, work, we have a list of criteria in terms of patients that we would consider winnable versus not, and the others are to do with uh, medical stability. And then we have some, some caveats just in terms of the resources of the unit, so we can't accept patients that are receiving dialysis because we can't do dialysis on that unit and the, the workload to transport them to the dialysis unit is, is just not feasible. So it really is... Um, when we, when we take on a patient, we have quite an in-depth uh, assessment and referral form. In the past, probably quite a few years ago now, um, our team used to go to the ICU. So Toronto is a big place. It's got a, you know, a millions of populations, so, and the traffic is terrible. Um, so in terms of the, the workload and time commitment to go and see patients in other ICUs, we decided that was not practical. Um, and so we now rely on our referral forms and then telephone consults. So the team, so most of the, um, most of the referral process is organized by our nurse practitioner um, in conjunction with consultation with the respirologists that, that manage the, manage the unit. So, and generally our referral admission process it takes several days, if not weeks. So it's a com it's a conversation that continues and continues until we say, yep, we think we can take that patient. We have space. We'll bring them in now. Fantastic. So, uh, since what what kind of success rate do you have for these patients? How many of them? What kind of state do they leave your department in usually, or, or is that very variable? Well, it is obviously variable. Um, so we did publish a paper, it's in the Canadian Respiratory Journal, published in 2012, which I'm happy to send a copy to you, um, mm -hmm. with our, our sort of retrospective outcomes, looking at outcomes of the patient cohort since the centre was opened. So, and we, we obviously look at our winning success rates because that's our, our primary indicator. And they sit around 65%. And when you right. consider that the average duration of ICU stay prior to this 90-day program is about 60 days, that mm -hmm. is pretty good. Uh, we do obviously, I mean, some patients, they become acutely ill again. Um, we do have a mortality rate. We do have to send patients acutely back to the ICU. And then we do have some patients that we declare as unwinnable and we then put them on the trajectory of finding them a long-term ventilation bed. So I'm just okay. How, how big is this puppy you've got? Okay, brilliant. So... The reason the reason I made contact with you, like I said, is because I saw this um, article that you produced, which kind of intrigued me a lot because um, I um, have never been part of a weaning centre. We do have one or two in the UK, but we certainly don't have very many. No. And actually, for that very reason, getting a patient into a weaning centre is 
not an impossibility, but they have to have been with us for a long time. You know, we've had patients that have been with us for 140 days, 250 days before they get anywhere near a weaning center. Mm -hmm. And it's almost what you're doing to a patient by them is almost putting through a torture process because they're in this false, noisy environment with lights going on and off at inappropriate times of the day. They never get any. If it's anything, if the ITU is over there, anything like the ITU is here, every time we design one, we put tiny little windows in that no one is ever going to see anything out of. Mm -hmm. So we shut them into this room with this false lighting. So it's just intriguing to me that one of the studies you decided to do, and this is, I think this is going to be really interesting to people that listen to this, was this. Um, the, the psychological well-being and the memories of intensive care and of the specialist specialized weaning center so this was a study about their memories of ITU and and the weaning center in which was this study done at the place you're at at the moment or a previous yeah. um, so, establishment? It, so it's at, at the weaning center and so as you say um, you know uh, weaning centers they're not that common like I know I know Nick Hatt and the, the center in in London um, this is this is the only center we have in in Ontario and the population of Ontario is about 12 million right so yeah, um, yeah. They're, they're not that common um, and, but it, I think it really does establish a different model that I think um, has indications for success I mean one of our major challenges in terms of doing research is that patient population is quite small so you can see from the study that you know in terms of our outcomes we can say you know we have good weaning success but in terms of our long-term outcomes of our patients they're still not brilliant right they're still you know we are trying to now recruit prospectively to look at, at these patients and do a more in-depth analysis of both their physiological and psychological outcomes and you know, we're really having challenges to recruit people because their trajectory of care after our 90-day stay or whatever they need to get them weaned off the ventilator, and generally we try to decannulate as well if, if that's possible. The trajectory of care is still so long before they get to home, and, and then there's still you know, substantial mortality, you know, looking at one year, two years, five years down the track. We don't have a long survivorship post post winning center admission so you know um, it, it is it is potentially a challenge that we, we don't have these environments and and you know there I think they are good things um, but again we're looking at a highly comorbid population whose long-term lifespan is not is not long generally you know it's you know obviously some of the younger people that we have great successes with they do really well but there is challenges but the average the average population age is is reasonably old in ITU isn't it as I'm sure we're both aware so why in particular and and I know you've done other studies um from your reference list alone that there was that study you've just spoken about is on the reference list for the, from this particular article why then did you particularly decide to focus on the psychological well-being rather than say something like I don't know sitting the patient out of bed or mobilizing early for example why why the psych psychological well-being is that because you think that is um, a larger part of their successful weaning process or is it just something you identified and let's do that so when I started um, my position there as, as research director, and so one of the things you know that I think is is really important is always um, ask ask the people involved, ask the clinicians, ask the patients and family if that's practical, what their issues are. And so when I started um, started working there, the big thing that everybody 
everybody said, no matter what level, virtually from the cleaner up, said the biggest problem with our patients is managing their anxiety. All these patients have substantial anxiety, and that anxiety obviously has an impact on their winning trials. And we spend a lot of a lot of time working on how how do we manage each individual's anxiety. So in the weaning centre, every patient that we admit gets seen by a psychiatrist within the first 24 hours. So they all get reviewed by a psychiatrist and then they have access to ongoing um, referral to that psychiatrist, but only within the limits of their stay in the weaning centre. So, um, you know, we, uh, we have done some work that is not yet published measuring anxiety during our weaning trials which are trademark trials, but we thought, um, and the other thing that goes on in the City of Toronto is so we have uh, Dr. Margaret Herridge, who is the uh, the leader of uh, a lot of the, and one of the pioneers of all the follow-up studies. She's done work in the ARDS population and now she has a huge research program looking at ICU survivorship. So, you know, we thought that it would be interesting um, to look at psychological outcomes in uh, in our survivors. Um, then we started trying to identify them. Um, and we thought that we had a, a different experience to the normal ICU experience. Not only had they had the normal ICU experience, but not even necessarily a normal ICU experience because they've been there so long. And as you say, you know, they're exposed to this, this environment for a very long period of time and they're conscious and aware of it. Um, they, you know, potentially are we're setting up a, a psychological problem for them because they continuously fail their weaning trial. So, you know, that is not a good thing. Um, and so we thought that it would be interesting to see that if there was any longer term effect and what they could remember and compare in terms of their ICU experience and our weaning centre experience that we all sort of were hoping and continue to hope is a better experience than being in the ICU. So that's why we decided to do the study. Okay. You Just to go back a couple of points, you said that um, your patients, when they come in, they're seen by a psychiatrist uh, straight away. What kind of issues does that raise? What kind of uh, problems was the psychiatrist encountering? What, what were these patients reporting when they, when they came to you to start with? So I think, I think most of the issues that the, the psychiatrist is generally dealing with are issues with anxiety and, and also some with depression as well. We do have, you know, we do have some delirium within our patient population. Generally, when we're admitting them, our idea is that we're not admitting them delirious. You know, this has been unrecognised, um, but we do have delirium develop within our patient population. Even though we, you know, we rip, we hardly ever use benzos. We don't use sedatives. Um, we use, you know, we do use some anxiolytics. So mainly, it's it's anxiolytics and it's you know management of some depression as well. Does does that approach is that feeding back to the ITUs? Because I know that the, there's a theory now at the moment, and a lot of the research is saying that you should be doing an analgesic first approach rather than sedating these patients. Yep. Is that something that's feeding back to your ITUs, or is that something they were doing anyway? Is that not, does that not come through yet? Because I know in this country we still tend to do the propofol first and then stick the alfentanil on afterwards, which I'm trying to get people to realise is the wrong way round. We need to try and get the alfentanil first 
first and then sedate if necessary. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of awareness that that is the better way around to do it. The practical reality is, I think, still that you know, it's the same sort of thing. It's like you know, manage their agitation with the sedation, not not the agitation is because of pain. Yeah. <laughs> So and then maybe get them some uh, some pain relief because uh, yeah maybe it probably was pain but now we would have bombed them so they were you know that sort of thing but there is a lot of awareness that it should be analgesia first um, you know um, the the sleep trial the the daily awakening trial that was conducted um, across Canada led at Mount Sinai um, here in Toronto that the protocol for that trial was an analgesia first uh, rather than sedation so there's a lot of awareness of it but again in reality doesn't always happen but in terms of we don't use sedation because our patients are conscious you know that one of the one of my criteria going back to our criteria is that they are able to direct their care so they're you know they're relatively cognitively intact with a few exceptions um, they're, and they're they're conscious and cooperative um, and able to to so we're, we're pretty much past the, the stage where they're needing sedation right okay I noticed from the study as well that you got um, the, the patients were um, ang uh, reporting anxiety and delusional memories. But one of the other things that they reported that you focused on, um, and I, I am I don't know why I'm surprised and I shouldn't be surprised. And in hindsight, perhaps I'm not surprised if that makes any sense. But thirst, it's very worrying, isn't it, that these patients, one of their biggest complaints is one of thirst. Mm -hmm. Does that does that mean we're doing something terribly wrong or is it just that their memories are is it is it a genuine thirst is it a memory of being thirsty uh, or is it poor practice is, is what I'm asking well it matches the findings that Kathleen Pantillo had from her study right so she identified um, she identified this in ICU survivors in a much larger cohort and she has gone on to do randomized control trial of a thirst intervention. So I don't think that, I don't necessarily, I don't think that we know, I don't think these patients are thirsty because they are dehydrated. I think we manage the patient's hydration status. I think it's it's the, the oral cavity and the sensations within the oral cavity that is leading and driving this memory of thirst. I don't think that, that generally, I mean, in most ICUs we keep our patients, you know, well hydrated, sometimes over hydrated. We don't tend to run them on a very dry basis. So I'm not sure that that's the issue. I think it's more to do with the mouth. Um, and I think that this is a finding that's coming across more and more. And Kathleen's intervention, I can't remember the, the details of it, but it was a relatively simple intervention in terms of um, rehydrating the oral cavity, rehydrating the, the lips. I don't know whether there was some spray involved as well, and done on a very frequent basis to, you know, we all, we do our mouth care. We're busy putting Clorhex and Colistin and all sorts of things in the oral cavity now. What the relationship with the actual memory trigger and what the brain is perceiving as thirst, I don't think we quite understand that. Okay. Um, the the other um, the other couple of things, and because um, 
I'm gathering from your research that it was kind of um, some of this stuff was ITU, some of it was from the weaning centre as well, and and the 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 inability to sleep and the the night awakening. Um, I I suspect that this is something that you probably want to get on top of fairly quickly because you need them to get their circadian rhythms back in order so that you can wean them properly. Um, is it, how do you manage that? Is that something you do chemically or are you doing it through various adjuncts, be it closing curtains, turning lights off, etc.? Is it a simple process or is it a combination of the two? A lot more of it is environmental management, right? So a lot more of it is restoring that day-night balance is you know closing the curtains turning the lights off but again there's not as much monitoring involved with these patients so we're not waking them up every hour to do to do vital signs and assess their neurostatus right it's you know they get they get vital signs monitored either four hourly or even eight hourly when they're in the more stable phase so they get a good eight hours of you know pretty much non-interruption and again there's a lot less staff there's a lot less activity going on, so they have a much quieter, dark, more natural sleeping environment than they do in the ICU. Okay, awesome. Um, so just to, the conclusion of your study um, is that basically the delusional memories in the anxiety order were, order were prevalent um, and um, Suggest, which suggests you need interventions to ameliorate the, these things. What kind of interventions do you think, A, in the short term and then perhaps B, in the long term, what, what could an ITU do now that would improve this for a patient? Uh, what could an ITU perhaps do in the future, in the longer term, to improve the outcomes for the patients as far as the psychological well-being is going? have a lot of work to do to understand anxiety in the ICU we don't there are some there are some good tools so the study that I was mentioning that we've we've looked at in the weaning center there are a variety of different um, tools and one of them is a faces tool um, developed by Sharon McKinley in Australia so you basically um, they can just point at you know either an, a, you can use a numerical rating scale there's the um, the STAI which is quite complex um, or the spaces scale where they can just point um, to where their anxiety is at present. So we have tried to use that sort of before, during and after a trade mass trial. I mean, if you look at the literature in the ICU, there's very limited literature about anxiety management. We've got, you know, we talk about agitation management. We know we know about pain. We know about delirium, but we don't really know much about anxiety at all. You know, and anxiety itself, um, when it becomes ingrained, it becomes more and more difficult to treat. So we don't know whether, and we don't want to avoid drugs and drugs polypharmacy because we've already got polypharmacy rampant in the ICU. So I don't know whether it's necessarily drugs are the answer. There is um, Linda Chlan's paper that just came out in JAMA, I think, last year about the use of music in the ICU as a, an and measuring anxiety and agitation. So I think we need to think more broadly and, and recognize that these patients undergoing prolonged weaning are experiencing extreme psychological and physical challenges. It's really hard work doing this, this weaning. So if you look at the, the qualitative papers that have explored the weaning experience, it's one of the key messages that come out. It's hard work physically and it's awful work psychologically. And I think we need to recognize that more. I think anxiety um, interventions, they really need to be 
a little bit tailored to the individual. We're all a little bit different, so some things will work in some people and others not. I mean, distraction is a very good tool. So if we're distracting people during anxiety-inducing experiences, which generally are their weaning trials, um, that is a, something relatively simple and helpful we can do. But I think, you know, this the paper that we're referring to, you know, I think that the sobering message is that there's a, a number of these people that are experiencing, you know, pathological anxiety many years after this experience. So we've embedded it. And the other message that we were getting that we've um, got in more sort of qualitative work is that the absence of support once they're discharged. So when they get out of the hospital system and when they get home, you know, they start having all these memories, they start re-experiencing all of this stuff. And a lot of them said, if I had somebody, a psychiatrist or somebody to go to when I got home, I would be much better off now. So, you know, access, as, as we know in many countries, access to, uh, to uh, psychiatric services is, can be challenging. Um, and so that is not widely available to these patients. Okay, cool, great, thank you. Well, I just what what what's gonna what what are you up to in the future? Are, is this is this something you're going to move forward with more studies, or is uh, are you moving down a different route? I was speaking to I don't know I'm sure you probably do know of or even know Dr. Cress who works in Chicago. He did the um, I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about you know getting patients. If you could, if the best thing you can do is get the patient's feet on the floor. Yeah. Um, if you can do nothing else, you can do that for ten minutes every day. And I'm trying to encourage my nurses to do that. Is there other studies out there that you are um, moving towards or involved in that um, are related to the weaning process that you, you're looking towards doing? Yeah, so um, so with my with my shift to my new place of employment, which is a little bit um, you know back to to the acute centered ICU, but um, what we are increasingly aware of, as as you know, is that this population are not going away, and then there's not getting fewer of them. You know, the patients with longer and longer ICU stays, the chronically critically ill, if you will, um, that that population is is increasing and is consuming more and more. Um, ICU resources, and I think um, for me, that is that is the area of my research that I will continue focusing on. And so, thinking about how we um, improve care, quality of care for the chronically critically ill in the acute ICU. You know, we've done a, a lot of work looking at quality indicators and bundles and various things, very much focused on the acute care population. Um, and we haven't done very much work to think about, so, okay, so now we've got the, the ICU patients that's, you know, slightly medically stabilised, but it's still in the ICU, still requires ventilation, now two or three weeks down the track. What are our quality indicators for that patient population? I think that's a, an important area to move forward with. And obviously, I'm very interested, you know, in management of um, anxiety and other psychological issues. Communication, I think, is a, a huge area of need. Um, and other things in terms of promoting weaning success. So I'm working with some uh, some people over here looking at cough augmentation, uh, looking at mechanical inexcitation or, or the manual version to try. And there's a whole group of patients within the ICU that I think would benefit from early application of cough augmentation um, techniques 
that will promote weaning. Excellent. Okay. Well, I'm not going to take up any more more of your time, Louise. It's been absolutely brilliant. I'm so grateful for you um, taking some time out to talk to me, and I'm sorry it's taken so long to organise, but uh, really useful to, to hear that. Smack US. Chicago. June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Nixon, Flower, Weingart, May, Rohi, Malimat, Levitan, Reed, Carly, Rogers. Got the date? June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Smack US. Chicago. Book it now. That was great. Thanks very much, Louise. Really grateful to be able to pick her brains about that. Sounds like a really interesting unit, and I wish um, we had more weaning units in this country. It always seems very hard to get some of our long-term patients to a proper weaning unit. And I think because of the pressure of all the other patients we have with the intensive care unit uh, and the throughput that we have, sometimes weaning the patients becomes a bit um, of a, a less of a priority than perhaps it should be. Um, our patients do deserve to have a more structured weaning process and getting them out of intensive care and getting them out psych- psychologically intact I think is just as important as, as a lot of the other work we do. Um, I think there's a lot of them that leave our unit with even post-traumatic stress disorder and there's lots of um, research out there that uh, talks about some of the effects of um, intensive care on the psychological well-being of the patients. I have linked to a few papers in the show notes for this particular episode, so please go and look at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk under this podcast episode. There's a few useful articles there um, that I think you may uh, enjoy reading and find quite useful. So as I say, there's lots of stuff out there about uh, the weaning process and the effect ITU has on patients. I've also started to look regularly at TED Talks. I don't know those of you that are familiar with TED Talks. If you're not, I highly recommend them. Um, I've been going through a podcast site called NPR TED Talk Radio, which is brilliant. It summarizes a lot of the TED Talks. These are talks around technology, entertainment and design. And they're very, very good. Lots of well-respected speakers who talk in an entertaining way, usually for 20, 25, 30 minutes maximum. This particular one I've linked to in the show notes is a TED Talk. And I've I've been on this uh, TED Talk on my website before by a lady called Amy Cuddy. And she talks about how body language can shape the way we think. Really interesting. Go and listen to it. Go and look at it. Go and watch it. Whatever. But I've put the link on the show notes. Um, And I'm going to do this regularly now because I love TED Talks. I think they're inspirational, a lot of them. So go and have a look at that one. So that's it from me for this episode. Uh, Once again, just go to remind you, please go to my website and have a look at lots of the other stuff I've got on there. Please try and get in touch. Uh, You can uh, subscribe to the newsletter. I'm trying to get that out regularly, keep in touch with you, keep you up to date with a lot of the information that I'm reading as well. Um, So that would be useful. If you want to leave any voice comments, there's the speak pipe there, which is a little tab on the side. You click on that and you can leave me a voice message. It'd be nice to hear from lots of other practitioners out there. I'm off on holiday, as I said earlier, off for another 10 days of camping. I'm hoping the weather will remain good. I hope you're enjoying the summer as well and looking forward to the next few podcasts. Uh, I've got a few interviews already in the can for those, so I look forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye.